be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show, Twin Peaks, and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we do consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 23rd overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 22, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 15, episode 23, or what the German regionalization team named Slaves and Masters. I'm your host, John. Episode 22 begins with looming chess pieces before Evelyn continues to go along with Malcolm's frame job of Jane's. Josie gets questioned about the death of Cousin Jonathan and then becomes a tradable commodity between Catherine and Thomas. Earl gets new henchman Leo into a shock collar before making him write poetry to local girls. Cooper gets evidence from Albert that Josie was his shooter. Shelley gets her job back at the diner. Pete plays chess for the law. Ed and Norma hook up and get discovered by Nadine. And Donna and James both attempt to convince Evelyn to come clean, but Malcolm forces Evelyn to choose shooting him instead of James. Ben wakes up from his Civil War delusion after everyone elaborately stages his full history-reversing victory, and Earl leaves a death mask of his wife Caroline in Cooper's room with a dramatic message on an audio tape. Okay, so with that, where does it leave us? So a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, and knowing what we know about season three, what questions are we left with with this episode now? How do the camera effects and cinematic choices play into the lore of Twin Peaks? How does Wyndham Earl tap into these forces to enact his plans? And how do we see characters overcoming these forces to find themselves? And before we start digging into those questions, we're going to look into the behind the scenes information on this episode. So episode 22 is directed by Diane Keaton and written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels. The script of this episode was written a few full weeks after the last episode script was finished, which tells me that... All the rewriting due to the canceled Audrey and Cooper dalliance was officially in the past, according to the production team here. And um, this episode's job, you know, besides continuing Wyndham Earl's introduction, is basically to close off all the storylines, but the Josie one, for the plots that began since episode 17 started. Um, so, yeah, like the arcs nearing their end, you know, Norma's intentional writing of her wrongs, like that's still kind of going. Um, and then, uh, Josie's exit, obviously, but, 
Um, you know, we've already ended the Jean Renault story. We've already ended little Nikki last episode. Um, and you know, the Earl Cooper Caroline thing is growing, but, um, here we finally get to celebrate the fact that the Evelyn and James storyline is over and Ben's time as a general. And who they gave that job to do to was Diane Keaton. Um, you know, the actress who played in Annie Hall and <laughs> all those other things. It was kind of a, a thing around set when she was there, that's for sure. Um, but as far as her directorial uh, leanings, she she ended up splitting the act in uh, five location scenes each, uh, each act. Uh, so it's actually pretty balanced there. And... Um, what she kind of does is she ends up leaning into the fact that Twin Peaks references everything that came before it. Um, you know, the the three cops close in a line, uh, you know, file filing out in a line afterward. I mean, I feel like that's something like Keystone Cops. I can't remember like all the, the comedic stuff where like, you know, you, you'd see these characters like marching very quickly, very close to each other. Um, the. Uh, you know, the, the line of bus drivers at Hideout Wally's listening to the opera. Uh, Jackie Gleason played, uh, you know, played Ralph Cramden, the bus driver. And um, Gleason himself was a was an avid um, opera listener. So I feel like that's kind of a reference to Jackie Gleason, which will not be the last reference to Jackie Gleason in uh, in Twin Peaks. So, you know, and, I mean, it's way different than the one that we'll get in Secret History of Twin Peaks, but we will get there. Um, but, yeah, I just find it kind of funny that like all these random uh, happenstances um, end up feeding into the uh, the greater lore of Twin Peaks later on, uh, even though it's kind of, uh, you know, Diane Keaton's whims here. Um, the uh, you know, there are nods like, you know, hi, Frank, you know, that's like very, um, you know, 40s and 50s kind of stuff. Like, uh, it, it reminds me of the Looney Tunes stuff where, um, you know, the sheepdog and the wolf are trying to beat each other up. But, you know, like when they get up to the time clock afterward, you know, they're like, hi, Frank, hi, hi, uh, you know, like whatever their names are, Sam. Um, so, yeah, like there, there's like this, um, this old school Hollywood way of everybody delivering their lines and looking in this episode. Um, I feel like, you know, Audrey's costuming and everything like that's, that's gotta be a nod to gone with the wind in some way. Uh, Cause I mean, that's the, the, the same kind of territory that they're treading to, honestly. And, um, you know, of course, there's the Wizard of Oz reference where, you know, everybody's gathering around Ben Horn and he asks twice, you know, it's like, where am I? And then, you know, the uh, it goes into Wizard Odd mode and he's he's like, you know, I had the strangest dream. It was incredible. I was in a war. It was General. I, I was General Robert E. Lee. And somehow, despite incredible odds, I won. And then, you know, um, you know, he's home and he feels terrific. And what are they doing in these clothes? And like, you were there and you were there and you were there. And, you know, it's, it's very much like Dorothy waking up, um, in, in wizard of Oz, but Keaton does more than just referencing old Hollywood here. Like she's, um, she's kind of referencing previous twin peaks stuff as well. Um, you know, the, the choreography and the James and Donna scene at hideout Wally's is almost similar. Like the way they keep moving from, uh, from spot to spot and getting interrupted by the, uh, 
by the bartender. It's it's almost uh, staged the same kind of way that Pete and Catherine were in the season one finale when she's like, you know, when they're they're closing the blinds in their own private office as employees keep trying to eavesdrop into Catherine asking Pete for help. And, you know, in here, it's two, the, the two kids are asking, um, or, you know, Donna's trying to get James to, to ask for help. On the way into um, Wyndham Earl referencing the, uh, the fairy pan in Midsummer's Night Dream, we've got um, saw blades buzzing and like you know no there's no need for saw blades here but it kind of references the opening credits and then like the way that sound is used with with malcolm in particular when um it's it's evelyn's final scenes and like she's getting ready to shoot him the sound gets very similar to um the maddie murder scene in episode 14 and i'll i'll be discussing that soon um but, you know, I mean, what what it ends up doing here is it gives a little bit more importance on the um, the Evelyn and Malcolm and James storyline, which it probably didn't deserve. But, um, you know, it um, it ends up kind of referencing that way anyway, um, which, you know, I, I will go into that. And another thing I'll go into in a bit is um, her use of like this superimposed imagery like where images are kind of laying on top of other images. And, uh, you know, then there's the slowed down camera tricks uh, aside from just the sound. Um, it's it's really incongruous compared to almost every other Twin Peaks episode, especially around her episode. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of docks its points uh, being graded <laughs> today, you know, like the, the esteem, its reputation with uh, current day fans. Um, it kind of gives it this whole vibe of, you know, it's like, oh, she's just trying to be Lynch or whatever. Um, but at the time, especially those, um, those camera moves, you know, like the, the speeding up and the, the, the superimpositions and all that, it, it kind of added an energy to the show. And, at the time of production and at the time of, you know, viewerships, um, it felt like it really needed it. Yeah. It's like, you know, there, there are storylines that are ending and, you know, let's, uh, let's bring some energy with it. Unlike, uh, you, you know, like what Tina Rathborn said about her episode needing the, um, I mean, um, uh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Tina Rathborn, um, talking about episode 17, how she felt like her episode needed some energy. Well, Diane Keaton is actually bringing some energy, um, whether, whether storylines deserve some of it or not. Yeah. The, uh, the energy was like everywhere. It was, it was, um, it was even behind the scenes, you know, it's like the staff loved her and, um, it, it gave this burst of energy back there too. You know, it's like most everybody wanted to be near the set while, while her presence was working. And, um, Robert Engels said in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, um, all film, all the film directors went long the first day, but TV stops at 10 p.m. The next days are always better and they catch on. And Keaton was the same way. She got behind, uh, tried to go long. And then, you know, he talked to her about it. And then he said, then the next six days she did great. She picked up and caught up. All the movie directors are the same. No matter what series you're on, the first day scares the hell out of you because they think they're making a movie. And then you talk to them and they pick up right away. Yeah, it's especially interesting to me because, like, 
Diane Keaton was there watching Uli Edel make the actors do, you know, 25 takes per scenes. You know, she she ended up bringing a level of playfulness that um, he didn't have. And she lightened the mood. And, you know, Kyle MacLachlan in Reflections, um, you know, by Brad Dukes, um, in particular, uh, McLaughlin said that he appreciated it. You know, he, he said, I remember it being a very playful and creative environment that she brought with her. Wendy Roby had some similar things to say. You know, she said Diane Keaton leaned in the doorframe and said what she wanted from Nadine. And Roby basically said that I had this urge to take off the eye patch and hand it over because she was brilliant. She completely understood Nadine. And then Dana Ashbrook, you know, he in, also in Reflections, he said he had a crush on Diane Keaton at the time. And uh, as he puts it, and she wasn't having it. <laughs> Ashbrook loved watching her and Bamer butt heads. So one person who didn't necessarily love the uh, the additions that Keaton was bringing into the show was Richard Bamer, who, um, you know, who thought basically in reference to the sets being um, being set by a studio rather than Ben doing the work himself. You know, he he basically says, you know, it was just like she was directing another series. It didn't feel like Twin Peaks to him. Uh, Bamer thought, you know, that he mentioned this at the time. I said, this is ridiculous. This should be Ben's drawing of the battlefield. It should be a mess. It shouldn't look like someone came in and drew this beautiful wheat field. And the other actors were wearing Little Bo Peep outfits. I kept asking, where did they get all these costumes? Why are they so perfect? He said, I could understand someone coming in wearing a bonnet to appease him. And I could understand Ben finding part of a uniform. But the boots and the right pants? No. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he had some things to say about the realism in his... Um, in his final day as Ben Horn, but I mean, as a civil war general, but you know, we'll get to that later. You know, then, then we've got another um, old school actress in here. You know, it's like you, you got folks like Miguel Ferrar who came in thinking, you know, Keaton had all the confidence in the world, but Piper Laurie read it completely differently and probably changed Catherine's tone for this episode. Uh, she said, Diane Keaton was extremely nervous with lots of nervous energy. I think it was her first time as a director. She wanted my character, Catherine, to speak at a pace that I felt was wrong. That made me nervous. And that sort of makes me retreat and go in the other direction. So, yeah, in the early 2000s, when I was rewatching this episode, um, I basically found Keaton's choices all welcome. And I know that John Thorne did as well in early issues of Wrapped in Plastic magazine. Um, you know, as far as how it's assessed now, it's gotten a worse reputation due to, you know, I mean, it's it's incongruousness uh, with the rest of the series. Um and I kind of think that she also gets points docked for the uh, the Evelyn and Malcolm storyline coming back for a fifth episode, even though it seemed like it could have been over. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of think that in general, I kind of fall in the middle for this episode where like I understand, um, you know, the energy that was kind of welcome at the time and i also understand that these camera tricks that she's using here um reflect really well comparing to the way that um cameras are used in season three but um i i do still consider this probably the um 
my my least favorite out of all the Twin Peaks episodes because it has this one particular fatal flaw, which is um, I mean, she she essentially does a character assassination of Wyndham Earl. Um, and, you know, I, I went completely specifically um, in on that on the Bickering Peaks episode focused on that uh, focused on episode 22 but um you know i'll i'll put that into words as we get into the window merle section but as far as the um the behind the scenes stuff with window merle we've got um you know bob engels and kenneth welsh together basically seem to have decided that earl was going to be a master of disguise in this episode is the one day that kenneth welsh actually met uh david lynch so he said David came on set the day I wore plaid and went to the concierge counter. David came on the set that day and Bob said, David, I'd like you to meet Wyndham Earl, Kenneth Welsh. Uh, David looked me up and down and said, good idea. Then off he went and that was it. So <laughs> even though, you know, in, in reflections, Kenneth Welsh shared more about Lynch's presence. Um, we we find out that you know Lynch was there at a distance, mostly approved little things as as the production went, and um, then Welsh said he disapproved of what I was wearing at the beginning when Diane directed. He said Wyndham should be in all black all the time when he wasn't in disguise. So you know there are no Long Johns anymore after after this. Um, after this episode, but you know, the character assassin assassination basically already did its damage. And, you know, we get, um, the fairy puck just as much as the cold, uh, collected mind is sharp as a diamond. And as far as that scene where he's playing the flute and beating the hell out of Leo, Welsh actually has more disappointment with that scene. Besides what I'm complaining about, <laughs> uh, he, um, he basically said in, uh, in Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the script indicated Wyndham played the flute, so I told Bob I play the shakuhachi flute, which is a Japanese flute made from bamboo. If we can make a rubber version of that, I can beat the shit out of Leo with it. He said, great idea. So I get on the phone with Angela Badalamente. He's in New York. I'm in L.A. He says, give me the notes on your shakuhachi. So I played whatever the notes are. And he goes to his piano right on the spot and comes up with this melody. He says, can you play this? And I play it. Then I went off uh, to the sound man. We recorded it four or five times, and we had something. Then I beat Leo up with the rubber shakuhachi. But they didn't use the audio, unfortunately. No, they used the synthesizer instead. I was disappointed. So we almost had Kenneth Welsh on the soundtrack as a musician, but I bet it sounded a little bit too different um, on the set from what was happening with the rest of the score and most of it is synthesizer. So I'm, I'm thinking that it's probably sound chemistry and sound consistency that probably got Earl's actual recording to, to end up being unused. Now, after it was made, it had to air on television and it did that on February 9th of 1991 to 8.2 million viewers, which is, um, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's only um, half a million less viewers than last week's 8.7. So it's not shedding a full million every time it airs anymore. But um, the the show was put on hiatus after the next episode. So 
this one, like while this didn't seal the deal of uh, of the impending hiatus, uh, it it certainly didn't help. And um, you know, dropping dropping to almost seven million viewers um, seems to be the um, you know there are no more chances after this kind of a ratings moment for ABC. Okay, so that's what the ratings had to say about the show. And we talked about the production history. So now we're going to go on to what David Lynch had to say about this episode in um, in 1993 when he was doing the Log Lady introductions for this. The Log Lady says, A death mask. Is there a reason for a death mask? It is barely a physical resemblance. In death, the muscles so relaxed, the face so without the animating spark. A death mask is almost an intrusion on a beautiful memory, and yet, who would not want to study it longingly as the distant freight train blows its mournful tone? So, I mean, Lynch, I don't think Lynch actually watched the episodes all the way through before this, and he just he just remembered, I mean, he, he probably read the synopsis that there's a death mask in Cooper's bed at the end of the episode, and that's what he latched onto to focus on. But it it makes me um, it makes me interested in that because like you know I I kind of wonder if if the death mask and the tulpa concept are somehow similar you know visually um, later on we have you know Lodge Laura's flip open face and Sarah Palmer's part fourteen situation that's also a flip open face and um, it looks a lot like this death mask so I kind of wonder if um, if that visual kind of stuck in uh, David Lynch's memory um, and he kind of uh, came back to it later, but also, you know, it's like, sure, that gets associated with characters that are likely tulpas. Um, And, you know, what could a tulpa also be an intrusion on a beautiful memory? Um, I kind of feel also like, you know, that lodge, Laura is brought into the lodge after she, probably put on the the owl ring and um you know we we saw we saw well i mean we see laura palmer in the lodge after she puts the ring on and fire walk with me though it's not exactly explicit and then in um in part 13 of season three we have ray monroe going into the lodge uh at least part of him while his body remains and i kind of think that is that actually tulpa creation is that um a death mask of the human who has just died. Um, and um, as far as who would not want to study it longingly, even when more, uh, when mournful tones are in the distance, you know, possibly closer to where the reality of the person's death is, is where that distant mournful tone is. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously none of this is actively intended here. You know, Diane Keaton had no idea that, you know, a death mask could be related to a tulpa concept. And neither did the writers at the time. You know, Engels and Peyton are up there. But, you know, the tulpa thing wasn't really included until later on. So um, it's it's obviously not a thing, you know, to, to, to really focus on. But the fact that, um, you know, Lynch later on, you know, he, he kind of focused on it and did a did a poetic riff on it for the log lady introduction i'm kind of uh 
noticing how it rhymes a lot with things in the future here too so um yeah yeah it's um it's an interesting thing to think about and i also kind of find it funny that you know that's the only thing lynch really wanted to focus on in this episode too so uh yeah who knows maybe he's as mad about the um the the windmill fairy connections as uh as it kind of gets under me too so uh who knows but anyway we're um we actually are going to go into the episode now, but uh, before that, we're, of course, going to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Okay, and we're back. And um, we're going to start off with a question that's a little bit more meta than usual. It's how do the camera effects and cinematic choices play into the lore of Twin Peaks? I'm going to start by um, by mentioning the superimpositions, you know, the uh, the um, and, you know, the camera tricks that are, you know, sp- you know, sped up or slowed down or like. Um, you know, like Josie's hand going from nowhere into her hand. Yeah, you know, like the 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 tricks like that. Um, and I do think that it does inject the energy into the scenes, which is good to have for the viewership. But um, you know, obviously, what are the unintended consequences within the stories for how that energy was actually delivered? You know, so at the at the time of you know 1991 when this aired um the episode's style was pretty much an outlier for everything else that came in the shows but you know after season three it actually works in a similar logic to all the um all the 2017 stuff you know like when we see the uh the lodge space influenced uh pov of the uh of the people that are the primary characters of the scene you know it's like it it seems like every character that is the main person in the 2017 scenes has their um has their point of view physically manifested you know whereas in the original twin peaks you know we're always seeing it from the point of view of the town so you know like um all the nadine stuff you know it stays in her head and you know we just see the um the after effects of you know like how everybody's reacting to it whereas in season three we only see what the world is you know it's like nadine would actually see the high school you know that that kind of stuff like you know she she would we we would see it more from her point of view if it was the 2017 stuff but you know here the launch space isn't supposed to be the set designer yet here it is in so many storylines you know and and honestly the way that um the way that we get Cooper's vision in the next episode, you know, this episode kind of becomes a precursor by accident for Cooper's vision that's coming up. You know, it's like the dream, the, the dream POV bleeds more and more and more and more into Twin Peaks since episode 20 or since episode 17 that, you know, even Bob can come out without a body next episode. Um, you know, in the, uh, is the, um, the magical realism adjacent internal POV shots here 
meaning that the town itself is kind of accidentally hitting a breaking point. Um, I mean, you, you could look at it from, from a metaphysical point of view that, you know, Earl could be harnessing or amplifying all the wildness in the town on purpose. But, you know, of course, Lodge Space is fueled by everybody's wants and, um, and fears. So, you know, the town could accidentally be complicit in this or, you know, like, uh, just not calibrated to the fact that Wyndham Earl is trying to drive the, uh, the Lodge Space. So, you know, we get things like, you know, Ben Horn, we get things like, uh, you know, Evelyn Marsh in this episode, but, you know, obviously we have to, we have to stretch a little bit to make it, you know, um, something that was intended because it wasn't, <laughs> but, you know, however, however you want to justify it, we've got the internal presenting more externally than ever in this episode, you know, so it ends up leaving enough room, um, for things like Bob and it ends up leaving a lot of interesting space to discuss in this episode to, uh, to kind of almost, I mean, in a way it's, it's worth redeeming compared to season three. So I'm going to start with, I'm, I'm going to call it the stuttering, um, the stuttering camera, um, where, you know, like we're, we're watching Josie's internal feelings come through, and, um, you know, we'll definitely see Evelyn's internal struggling coming through, too. But, you know, why do we see it, especially with those two ladies? Um, it seems like, you know, based on the pattern of this episode, the people affected by the slow and the filtered cameras, um, they seem to be stuck in someone else's plans and appear powerless to do anything for their own self-interest. You know, it's it's almost like how in season three we'll see stuttering characters or like flickering characters like, uh, you know, like the woodsman in part eight or the uh, or the lawman at Jackrabbit's Palace in part 14, where they're kind of flickering in and out in multiple positions at once. And, um, you know, it seems there that we're possibly seeing like multiple timelines converging at junction points. But, you know, here you can kind of justify that, like you know, Josie and Evelyn in particular, they have two directions they can go, but they're stuck between neither. And, you know, with, with Josie's first scenes in, um, you know, the, the second, the second scene of act two, the transition into it is blowing trees and, you know, the wind continues into her scene. So, you know, then we get the weird stuttery film where, um, you know, Josie's red nailed hand is shown and then it like special effects into her normal speed hand, uh, which is gripped at her elbow. And, you know, that's her left arm right there. You know, it's like, was it, was it in pain? Was it going numb before she dies? You know, it's like, who, who else gets effects? Um, are the, the people in proximity to death in a way. And I know Evelyn doesn't die in this episode, but she kills someone. So, you know, it's like, are these effects happening because you're near death? But yeah, anyway, um, Josie's hand here is on a workbench. And, um, you know, Josie is definitely feeling trapped. And it's the scene where she's in a maid costume being interrogated by Cooper and Harry. And, you know, you could you could almost say that, you know, those two hands are the two Josies one going in a direction where she comes clean and one where she keeps her secrets. 
you know, she just can't figure out which way she's going. But, you know, obviously, I think she ends up deciding on the secrets because that's Josie. So anyway, in that scene, Harry says that, you know, they need to tell the Seattle police something. And, um, you know, Josie asks, how did Jonathan Kunigai die? And, uh, you know, they tell they tell her, you know, shot three times back of the head. And then she clutches her shoulders while this is happening. And she's looking down and kind of inside herself, almost like she's not even hearing it or she's not in the same place where she's hearing. And, you know, she doesn't appear to know how Jonathan died. But then, you know, we get a shot where we see through the table, you know, a, a wood knot hole in the table. Um, she reaches over and grabs Harry's hand. It, it's at the time where now would be an ideal time to tell the truth. And we don't really get to see anything further from there because Cooper goes away for another cup of Joe, as he puts it. And, um, you know, he checks the percolator, which was a nice, uh, subtle callback to the fish in the percolator that Cooper probably is always on guard for now over at the Blue Pine Lodge. And, um, you know, in comes Pete with a giant pile of coats. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we have a swinging door, like a perpetual motion machine swinging door on Pete's side. And um, it's completely closed on Cooper's side. So, you know, is that um, is that symbolic of one being more transparent than the other in this case? Uh, you know, Pete, Pete says he's helping uh, Josie, who's really overtaxed. Um, you know, Catherine's working her. You know, even Pete can see that um, that Josie's feeling oppressed. And, uh, you know, then he dumps the coats onto Cooper because he's going to answer the also ringing phone uh, in the other room. And, uh, you know, Pete, the, Pete says the call is for Josie, who Cooper says is in the other room. You know, this clearly gives uh, Cooper, re er, Cooper room to do an investigation of the, uh, the Vicuna coat and gloves that he noticed. Um, you know, we, we don't get to see, uh, Josie's further interrogation because, you know, next thing we see is the shift to Josie on the phone with the, um, with, you know, Thomas Eckert, who is still wearing sunglasses from last night. Um, and he takes ownership right here of Jonathan's death. Um, so, you know, this kind of takes Josie's suspicion out of that part of the storyline, even though everybody else continues on like she did it. And, you know, like viewers will probably remember that she killed her cousin, Jonathan, or whatever his name is. Uh, I'm whatever his role is. I mean, um, but you know, here, uh, Thomas is definitely, um, proving that it's a flex on, on Josie. And, you know, this is, um, this is like, automatically supposed to be proving his threat level to her in um in their first on-screen interaction but then you know we don't even get the end of that scene because the uh the snooping catherine on the other line where you know you used to be able to have multiple people in the house on the same phone uh on the same phone call because you know they're all connected by the wires through the uh the telephone line within the house um so, you know, Catherine hangs up on the other line and, you know, gives her own proclamation of, you know, like, this is why she knows that she can send an invite to Thomas uh, for this dinner party that's going to happen in a bit. You know, next time we see Josie in a scene, um, you know, there's another transition from trees into a superimposed night piece, possibly to imply Cooper, I'm assuming. Um but, you know, this time it goes into the sheriff's station and it's not Josie herself, but it's about her. Um, 
because you know i guess this is focused on the um the cooper investigation now and you know maybe it's uh talking about a woman in trouble but you know the connections are kind of there anyway with the night piece albert is you know calling cooper over at this point to uh to see a slide of the vicuna and he connects cooper's shooter to josie's coat and um you know this is when albert like really hits it home and says he bets the slugs and kunigai will match the ones from cooper's vest so you know he's not he's not at all correct with his intuition even though the facts kind of uh give correlation and, you know, that reminds me of what we're going to get in the final dossier when um, when Albert does Leo's autopsy. And, um, you know, instead of leaving the possibility open that, you know, Doppel Cooper probably is the one that shot Leo on the way to getting, you know, Earl's equipment because, you know, Earl died in episode 29. The, the facts aren't there for Albert to be able to know what happened in the lodge. So he worked with the um the most logical details that he had and he assumed that Lee, uh, that uh Wyndham Earl came back out and um shot Leo on his way out of town. You know, th- this is kind of showing Albert's reliance on only facts and um you know, no no reason to correlate anything further. But, you know, Albert really is correct about another thing where, you know, our sheriff's got a serious problem with his girlfriend. This is when it gets kind of weird because, you know, Cooper's response to that is, Albert, not one word until we're certain. And, uh, or certain, you know, Cooper would share more than this by now with Harry. I mean, he trusts Harry. And, you know, Harry already put him on the case to investigate Josie's involvement in the Asian man killed, um, facts and um you know it's like cooper i mean harry is already you know he's already nervous about this and um i i think that you know cooper would find a way to prepare him for bad facts at this point or you know facts that would you know hurt him negatively so like what's the subterfuge on cooper's side about you know it's it's not in character with him you know, tell the truth, tell the hardest truth first is far away from Cooper here. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously it does serve the plot so that, you know, the climax can hit next episode rather than this episode, uh, you know, a confrontation between Harry and Josie. And, you know, it leaves room for the dinner party scene uh, to be able to happen next. You know where the where the climax is of this episode is at that dinner party scene. You know, it's like we get um, we get Josie at the Blue Pine Lodge. You know that we see a half moon, and then it's superimposed by blowing trees, which is superimposed by a door, and um, that's where you know Maid Josie opens the door, and we get Eckhart spinning into frame from there like he was you know just waiting for the door to open so he could do a dramatic entrance, <laughs> and um. You know, Joan Chen just does a really good job with the fear in this episode. I mean, yeah, really, in the whole episode. Um, you know, Josie is frozen in surprise here. Um, while, you know, Catherine, you know, obviously knew it was coming. She says, Mr. Eckert, Josie, help our guest with his coat, which, you know, Josie actually does because she's still understanding her role makes her Catherine's, you know, 
essentially slave. You know, it comes out that Catherine gave the invitation after she verified he was in town with that earlier eavesdropping. And, um, you know, she, uh, Catherine intentionally made this meeting happen. You know, this was not Eckert's idea. So, you know, she's making Josie uncomfortable and less human on purpose with this. So, you know, we see Josie struggling with a champagne bottle while Catherine gets Eckert to speak about how his and Andrew's friendship soured. And, um, you know, Eckert says, you know, men of business frequently find their personal lives disrupted by the larger portraits they paint. And Catherine responds, when you had my brother killed, was it was it for art or money? And then, you know, don't just stand there, Josie, poor. So, you know, she's um, she's running this like an investigation and a dinner uh, engagement. So Eckerd, Eckerd basically says, you don't kill for art or money. They are commodities easily lost and just as easily gained. However, one, uh, uh, one of other, I would find reason to kill for love. And, you know, that's as Josie arrives and starts serving between Catherine and Eckerd. And, um, you know, as if, as if she wasn't there at all, um, Catherine asks, you know, it's like, did you love her that much? And he says, yes. <laughs> oh boy. It's uh really, really uncomfortable, this scene. And, um, you know, then they actually note that Josie's there. Yeah. You know, Catherine says, Josie has the most beautiful hands. Uh, you know, and that was the first thing that we see this episode too, which is probably why we got that first shot. Um, but Catherine takes one of those hands and hands it to Thomas and, you know, we watch him take it and kiss it. And, um, you know, Josie's reacting in a trapped way, but, you know, she leaves the hand there for a little bit. And, um, you know, then she walks away, presumably to consider the job at hand for the dinner preparations, which, you know, that's probably the only way she could get out of there. But, you know, while she finishes preparing, Catherine says, I wonder what she, we shall do about her. It's, it would be a shame if you left empty handed. And, you know, this gets Eckert's full attention. So, you know, Josie's a servant in the room, but she's also an item for sale now. And, um, you know, she is very much the Millennium Falcon of these people. You know, she's over there cutting vegetables while Catherine continues. Of course, I'll miss her cheery disposition. We've become best of friends. Two girls chatting over tea. And, you know, the only way that I could see that is that, you know, it's some negotiation tactic that, you know, Josie actually has value to her, which, you know, she can't even come up with a good thing about. And Eckerd counters, perhaps you should purchase an animal of some kind, a cat or a dog, so he knows. So... Yeah, I mean, like, they're they're treating her like a negotiation. But, you know, it's, it's like this thing that they both understand has a lot of value. But, you know, they could trade it at a game of cards like the Millennium Falcon. You know, it's like even, even um, Harry, who, you know, quote unquote, loves Josie, he treats her like a sexual possession. So, you know, like the, this whole thing with with Josie is she really is like this magical object that everybody wants. I don't know. It, it, the, the whole thing just kind of makes me uncomfortable because, you know, Josie should contain humanity. She is not a ship that you fly around, you know, it's like, she is so much, she, she's supposed to be so much more than that because she has humanity and it's on display here uh, because Joan Chen is acting as if she is a human who's trapped. But I mean, essentially what we get here 
is i mean it's a slavery deal it's it's made during during the same moments that ben horn's delusion is beginning to end you know the, though though ben's uh, story will end with slavery winning um you know, so it ends there as well. And it's a thematic togetherness with the bad guys of this whole episode. But ee, I don't know. It's um, it's it's tough here, especially. So, you know, we've got Josie who's now watching rather than cutting now that she understands that, like, her whole life and situation is up for negotiation and, you know, is likely going to change against her favor. You know, so she's resigned and she's depressed about this. Then Catherine basically says, you know, if I give her to you, what will you give me in return? You know, Eckhart, he, he's still playing coy. You know, like, how can I place a value on some things so precious? And, you know, gives Catherine an eyebrow raise. But, you know, it's like something rather than someone. <sighs> and all Catherine says is, but you will try. And Eckhart says, yes. And because he has agreed to put a value on Josie for some kind of trade, um, then, you know, Catherine just says, you know, Josie, Thomas and I will have our main course now because, you know, that part of the deal is done and she got her way and now it's time to eat. And, um, you know, Josie's arms turn and present the boar face, which is staring up at her with a green apple in its mouth and it's surrounded by green and red grapes on the on the platter. Um, so, you know, like in a way, it's almost like a death mask of the boar laying flat and facing up, uh, prepared for the entrapped to see it, just like, you know, Cooper sees the death mask at the end of the episode. So, you know, we've got Josie. She's officially a commodity and a servant, but not a person. So she's dehumanized by the people who have power over her. And the other place where we see the effects really strongly is over in the Marsh House scenes. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the episode as a whole, it begins with these chess pieces, um, you know, the giant chess pieces. You know, it's panning from right to left and it's scrolling in on them eventually, too. And, um, you know, then through them, too. Uh, and, and in this opening um, montage of chess pieces, with the superimpositions, you know, we see a major focus on the queen and, you know, it even, su it even superimposes one angle of a queen on top of another angle of a queen, two queens. <laughs> and, um, Earl's major long game focus is his, uh, chess fascination. But, um, you know, the thing he's always focused on, even in this episode is, you know, who is his queen? So, you know, it's like, are there two queens that are up, you know, is there Dale's queen and then we get Evelyn sacrificing herself by the end of the episode? Is that why um, why there's two of them right there? Or is, you know, the the one <laughs> is the one chess piece like Cooper in part 17 uh, saying, you know, we live inside a dream to the other chess piece. Yeah, it's like who could <laughs> I know that's not intentional, but um, yeah, I'm I'm just, you know saying um like definitions for the same kind of camera techniques <laughs> uh <clears throat> and also kind of poking fun that like none of this is intentional in that way but you know right after we see the superimposed queens we do see evelyn here and it starts from her from her toes and ankles all the way up to her morning veil 
you know, it's like while while we're looking at her face, um, kind of looking off in the morning veil. I mean, in, in the in the veil, um, we hear Malcolm speaking to the cops, and you know, Evelyn chimes in to ID James Hurley. So you know, she does include herself in this part of the setup, even though she helped him escape last episode. And you know, after the cops leave, uh, Malcolm comes over to Evelyn and gets friendly with her. And while she's still sitting on the stairs in that in that opening shot. And then he says, so we bid adieu to James Hurley. Um, but, you know, she's not in the mood for any celebrating of that. And, uh, you know, she just wants it over with and says, you know, give it a rest. And, um, you know, we get why she's still on board with Malcolm's plans when he says, careful, Evelyn, I don't think I can tolerate a nervous co-conspirator. So, you know, this is how he's established as dangerous, just like uh, we got Eckert established as dangerous to Josie. And then, you know, the scene ends with a shot of her on the stairs again before she spoke, um, you know, like almost like, you know, she's she's imagining it from there again. And she wants to start over again as if this last part of the scene hadn't happened yet, where maybe she helped turn in James. And, you know, in this case, it really does seem more like it's a part 17 Cooper correlation. You know, Evelyn's kind of trapped in this moment that she wants to do over. And she's kind of trapped in a red room and can't face the time that's actually happening. You know, or or is it kind of like what Leaf from uh, Same Peaks y'all said about that part 17 scene? You know, it's about, you know, when you're meditating, when you're in that kind of a moment, you see it all impartially from outside yourself. So is it kind of like Evelyn is so trapped that like she's seeing it from outside herself? Like it's not exactly meditation, but it's more like being trapped in the red room. You know, regardless, this um, this kind of time traveling adjacent camera work where we keep seeing Evelyn at the beginning of that episode, um, you know, in, in the morning veil. You know, th this doesn't really happen before now in Twin Peaks, and it doesn't happen again for a long time. And, you know, from Keaton, Diane Keaton seems to be using, you know, flashback framing device for this episode, which is, you know, a technique that you could do in television back then. But um, it's still odd because um, in Twin Peaks, you know, before now, everything is fairly linear, except for the random flashback that would happen uh, based on what somebody's thinking about. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the uh, the the random superimposition of, uh, you know, Caroline Earl, that kind of thing. But, you know, that doesn't usually flash back to something that happened like five minutes ago in the show, like Evelyn with the Morning Veil. But what I will say about that is starting out with that being the first scene in the episode, it is a really interesting way to end a story that has been up to now, like the four episodes before this of the Evelyn Marsh storyline. Um, that was played really straight in the past four episodes. And, um, you know, it, it never really had any of the typical Twin Peaks subversions that um, you would come to expect from those kind of like hard boiled storylines. But, you know, what we get here at the end is, you know, the subversion is left for here when Evelyn starts getting more unanchored from her present than, you know, any character besides Maddie Ferguson. You know, the, the played straight storyline is almost redeemed here with the supernatural laced ending. But um, 
in in most ways it ends up being a little bit you know too little too late you know to involve james in the storyline again we get a wally scene next where the um you know, with the opera-loving bus drivers and, you know, James and Donna walk past that whole line of them like they're a backdrop. We have Donna talking to James, you know, it's like, we can't get out of this by ourselves. We need someone to help us. So, you know, we've got the thing about help again uh, coming up as a main theme of Twin Peaks. And, um, you know, they they flip-flopped which one wants to go to the cops because, you know, in the in the original investigation episodes at the beginning of season, you know, at the end of season one and beginning of season two, we had James always wanting to bring in the law enforcement and Donna wanted to keep the secrets to herself uh, or to their selves. So it, it kind of like the, the trope, I guess, is, you know, whoever is the secondary character gets to want to include help and others and the lead character in the storyline gets to solve things in secrets and you know it's like that that's how help is always dealt with in these twin peak scenes and you know james i think is thinking you know that he didn't do anything so he doesn't need help you know he, he says you know it was malcolm who killed mr marsh and you know we get the bartender interrupting and um he says you know can i get you something miss hayward so one one the bartender remembers exactly who she is by name you know, he's interrupting a conversation that he can obviously hear. And then two, is he actually answering her call for help here? But then, you know, what does she answer? She says, no, nothing. You know, James won't call Ed. Talking with Evelyn is the only way. And, um, you know, he says that she'll admit, you know, she'll admit about what's really happening. You know, we get the bartender interruption number two here. Uh, and he's from a new angle here. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a question to James's last thought as, you know, a, as much as it is reconfirming with Donna about, you know, are you sure? So, like, you know, like even he's asking why James thinks that Evelyn will um, will actually end up helping him. And, um, you know, Donna figures it out why James thinks Evelyn will listen to him. and. Um, you know, she's not too thrilled about it, but, um, you know, what she basically does is at this point, she's not going to negotiate with James anymore because he done got himself involved with a, uh, with a black widow, quote unquote. And, um, she just says, she's going to go call Ed, stay here. This is when Donna does call Ed and, you know, she starts to share everything before she ends up calling him a net about her new boyfriend when a cop comes in and, you know, stops to listen to her her uh, suspicious conversation and you know eventually the cop goes on and you know passes by james and this is when james decides to take off and you know all the bus drivers turn and simultaneously say hi frank and um you know that's when we finally get the opera music to end and you know basically i mean the these march scenes are so lodge spacey that like Ed doesn't even seem to know that he got a call from Donna because, you know, maybe because he's not a net, you know, <laughs> he's, he's not uh Richard or Linda. He's, he's a net. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of thematic with the way last episode portrayed all the nightmares and like everything went with the tropes, but you know, they kind of stayed, in their little pockets you know it's like the 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 slasher movie didn't go outside of shelly and bobby 
you know, here, maybe the phone call didn't leave the marshlands because it's like sort of red room adjacent. And, you know, the next time we see the Wally's uh, location, it's it's got more unanchored weirdness um, when Donna, without James, finds Evelyn. Yeah, we, we get the shot of a wine glass. Evelyn's climbing onto a stool. And um, for some reason, Donna, it, maybe she never left. You know, Donna's still there waiting for Ed, maybe. I don't know. Um, but, you know, she get, Donna gives um, Evelyn her name this time, which, you know, that's what used to keep her out of these things. You know, it's like she never gave her name to the Tremonts. You know, it's like she uh, uh, maybe maybe giving her name to Evelyn is how she like magically apparates in the marshals later on this episode who knows um but um you know evelyn goes on full noir and nihilistic here and like uh annette mccarthy does a great job with the acting in the scene and um you know donna's only response is you really like to make everything seem pointless and stupid don't you and um <laughs> you know this is when we get malcolm entering and um you know he wrangles uh, evelyn's drunk ass and um, you know threatens donna that you know if he ever sees donna again he'll kill her and you know he like kind of grabs her by the by the face almost and uh it's um it's kind of a weird scene in the first place, but like, what's the point to it? Donna is unsuccessful in stopping them from framing James, which, you know, kind of bookends the next scene, which is at the Marsh house. And this is when James storms in and gets his chance to be unsuccessful. And, you know, it's like before he storms in, you know, there's the saxophone version of Audrey's prayer and, um, Evelyn's blowing smoke rings. And, you know, she basically walks into the main entryway and that's when James like pushes open the doors and like storms in and says, why did you do it? And, you know, his head's right with hers, like three inches away from her face and the whole time. And like he's walking forward and she's walking backwards, almost like they're in some kind of dance routine. And, um, you know, Evelyn starts out by saying it's not safe here, Malcolm. And, um, you know, that he doesn't leave that way, but she's trying to get him to leave by telling him straight out that it's not safe. But, you know, he's not listening to her. And he says, you know, you better tell me a story, Evelyn, because I'm all mixed up. And, um, you know, he, he basically just wants to know why she would do that to him. Then he pushes her onto the couch, which gave me serious, like, Leland pushing Maddie vibes with the way that it was shot. You know, even, even down to the angle that, you know, Evelyn's kind of down on the bottom right and frozen in place from that point forward. And, you know, Evelyn changes her tune and tries to go noir again and says, you know, what do you expect? An apology? A hidden heart of gold? I did it all. Everything. I found you. I lured you in and I kept you here while Malcolm planned a nice little frame for the money out of fear because I wanted to do it. Is that exactly what you wanted to hear? The truth hurts. Except, you know, she said for the money out of fear because she wanted to do it. You know, she gave him a multiple choice of things to latch onto so that he would just get the hell out of the house where he could be safer. You know, she wanted to end things quickly and definitively. You know, she ends up also taking responsibility for her part of the whole thing here. And then when he wouldn't leave him automatically, then she says, James, you're good, honest, but I'm not. And, you know, that doesn't mean, but, uh, then she continues, but that doesn't mean there weren't moments when I truly wanted you here. Not for Malcolm or the money, but for me, for the good and honest way you taste. And um, that's also her being pretty honest here. That's it's kind of like she's exposing like what she actually wanted. 
after she kind of gave him the lines that wouldn't make him leave. And, um, you know, of course, his only response is, well, I like how you taste, too, which um, it's a really kind of line delivery that I'm, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, boy, James, <laughs> you know, it's like he's not very good at that. Um, but, you know, it, it it at least proves that, you know, the angry noir James that we got at the beginning of the scene that was like pushing Evelyn backwards with just his walk. Um, you know, he, he's definitely been swayed over to the different frequency and, you know, they kiss, but you know, this is when, um, magically appearing Malcolm clocks James with the gun handle. Evelyn didn't seem to know that Malcolm was there either. Um, and you know, she just says, Malcolm, what did you do? James, James, this is where we get the stuttering slowdown camera effects again, where, um, you know, Malcolm's basically restraining her on the couch and, you know, begins to tell her the story that she should tell the cops later. You know, he broke into the house. He was angry. He was crazy. He killed Jeffrey. He came back to kill you. And, um, <clears throat> you know, her arms are moving in this weird kind of like moving into themselves, like morphing kind of way, just like Josie's, uh, Josie's arm in her first scene. Um, and, you know, Malcolm's continuing to speak where, you know, um, you know, he tells Evelyn that she was ready for him and she shot James. And, you know, his voice also has lower tones attached to it, too, kind of like how Doc Hayward and Cooper had lower tones um, to their voices in the Todd Holland directed sequence with um, with Major Briggs in that forested area. <clears throat> so, you know. Major Briggs was experiencing words physically around him, even though his mind was somewhere else sitting in the, uh, the white lodge probably. And, um, so, you know, here, hearing Malcolm's voice like that, it's like Evelyn seems to be kind of spiritually separated from where her body is, even though we're still seeing her body through a weird kind of sludgy filter. You know, she's she's having trouble experiencing the world at normal speed in a normal way. So it's very lodge spacey. You know, it's like she's not quite in solid reality here. And, you know, more proof of that is we get the veil shot of, you know, the the um the the morning veil shot of her face superimposed over here uh, just for a moment while Malcolm is still talking about how she shot him dead about James. And, you know, then the scene ends with Malcolm kissing the side of her frozen face. So, yeah, Evelyn is definitely trapped here. And, you know, after after seemingly a lot of time should have passed, you know, the, the whole Ben scene um, happened. And, um, yeah, like th there was there was one other scene, too, that I can't think of. But, you know, it's like there's there were it, it seems like things should have moved forward. Um, based on the other two scenes that were between the scene I just talked about and then the next time we see Evelyn and Malcolm. But, you know, they're exactly where we left them. You know, they're still on that couch, and James is still passed out on the floor at their feet. And we have Malcolm saying, the story rings a little truer with your prince on the gun, but, you know, Evelyn isn't reaching for the gun uh, to get her prince on it, and, um, you know, he's not forcing it on her either. You know? And so she needs to be convinced to do it. And, um, you know, they says, you know, just the prince, leave the rest to me. And, you know, Malcolm will imitate hysterics and, you know, the, he'll do five shots, tightly grouped, like it went off in her hand. Um, 
And, you know, Malcolm has thought about this kind of stuff. But then he does get the gun in Evelyn's hands. But this is right when Donna enters and, you know, goes, no, no, no. And, <laughs> you know, Donna's do, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle is doing a good job acting, too. It's just she has this weirdly staged material uh, where, you know, it's like, how did she get into the house? Same way Malcolm did, apparently. Um, but, you know, while Evelyn and Malcolm stay seated, Donna just n- kneels down next to James um, but keeps staring at Evelyn like Evelyn has control of this situation, you know, now that she has the gun. And, you know, what what happens is um, the only movement in the scene is Malcolm moves next to Donna and grabs her by the collar. So, like, you know, like, you know, and Donna kind of thrashes around like, oh, you're controlling me. Um, but, um, you know, it's, I'm pretty sure she could break free from Malcolm based on that. You know, it's but um, it, it it's strange because this whole scene with the positions, you know, of Evelyn on the couch and Malcolm and, and Donna next to each other. Um, it almost gives the same vibe that, you know, the, the three characters performing just you. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of similarly dreamy, but for all the wrong reasons, but it's interesting how, um, you know, it's okay. Ben's delusion becomes more and more realistic as a uh, like a stage production almost but like this storyline that started around the same time is becoming less and less anchored in realism as it goes and um you know this scene you know but donna is basically saying that you know she's already called the cops they're on their way it won't work so she's trying to convince evelyn not to do it by shouting things like that and malcolm keeps telling her Give me the gun. Give me the gun. And, you know, it's like, I I think, you know, <laughs> from Evelyn's point of view, she's sitting on the couch and like both these two people are basically like the devil and the angel on her shoulders, telling her how to make a binary decision that she doesn't want to make. And, um, you know, she's stuck between one decision or another decision, too, just like Josie. So, you know, that's why she gets the weird camera effects on her. There's no actual metaphor in this scene it's all personally you know it's all like uh personified you know it's all physical uh you know there's no need for metaphor because it's all right here happening which you know gives it that lodgy kind of vibe um but you know okay we get evelyn standing up you know she's displaying on her face that she's caught in the middle of this difficult decision and she begins to back out of the room holding the gun and she says no i can't do with this malcolm you know then she separates her hands and lowers the gun this is when the stuttering effects definitely return and evelyn's back to just being trapped um you know she's made her decision and now she can't get out of what that decision did to her um and you know malcolm comes up and decides to take the gun from her rather than wait for her to offer it finally and you know he says then i will and you know he gets up and you know the stuttering camera effects are on him too and he's walking toward evelyn and you know for some reason donna is still kneeling on the ground next to james in place you know without trying to do anything um and you know Malcolm is shot once in the stomach at point blank range. And, you know, the, the bullet makes a sound, uh, the, um, it it seems like the, the bullet makes the sound slow down, uh, but only on Malcolm because, you know, we hear the women's voices appearing to be normal on top of the, uh, the slowed down effects that happened to Malcolm. 
So, you know, this this is where we get really noticing the uh, comparisons between the Manny murder scene and this scene. You know, it's like the slowed down vocal effects when someone is dying. But it's only his voice, which, you know, it's it's the victim's voices that get slowed down when they're close to death. You know, it's like Maddie's voice is the one that's like howling and like really, really unnerving in that slow down way. You know, it's it's not necessarily just Bob's proximity, though his proximity to the episode is, you know, he's lurking in next episode. So you could kind of justify it that way if you have to. But, you know, it's like, how do you um, I, I know it's just, you know, victims when they're getting killed you know, their, their voices slow down in a way, but you know, it's like, how do you, um, you know, this is me explaining a, uh, a flourish that a nervous director decided to call back to, but you know, it's like, do I think it's important enough of a scene? Do I think it's lodge spacey enough on its own to justify Malcolm having the same kind of vocal tones as Maddie? No, but, um, you know, there, there are ways to justify it and, you know, combine it with things and you know we we have evelyn and malcolm falling together and you know she's laying um facing up on top of him and um she seems to be repurposing things that he told her to say at the end of act three um when time was was actually similarly stuttering too um you know so she's still in this mode where you know her her black veil face can you know show back up again (laughs) and um you know, like she she's saying in um, the the flickery camera kind of way, um, he was angry. He was crazy. He killed Jeffrey. And, you know, we get Donna also being in this um, stuttering camera effect. Uh, and she's still glued to the floor next to James, but she's watching Evelyn. Uh, so Donna is kind of the witness to a murder here. You know, Evelyn's continuing on and saying, you know, he came back to kill me. I got my gun and I shot him. So, you know, the 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 Evelyn in Vale shot fades in and out again. Um, like, you know, we, we live inside a dream. I shot him until he was dead. And, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know. It's, um, you know, the, the sound slowdown kind of starts to happen here, too. But it almost seems independent of Evelyn's point of view. So, you know, is... um is Evelyn unstuck from time like Jeffrey's now? Um, yeah, no, (laughs) but, um, you know, her, her, her storyline is finally unstuck from the plot here. You know, where, where we leave Evelyn is she's just like Josie. She has no one to help her at the end. Now we do see that stuttering camera effect one more time. And it's after Leo learns that Earl wants to potentially hurt Shelly. Um, you know, there, there's the images of the three girls, um, you know, falling, floating to the floor. And it's probably partly because it's associated with the, uh, the queen, uh, chess piece imagery from the beginning. And, you know, it's, um, you know, one of these three women will be in the purpose of Earl's queen, but, um, we also have, you know, more being trapped in the situation. Is Leo trapped here? Is he feeling like the women are trapped too? Is there some, you know, inevitable trap for them as well? And, um, you know, we we just don't know what it is yet because Earl has plans. 
Personally, I think it's some kind of combination of all of the above, and Leo should feel trapped because he is. Um, you know, Leo Leo was his most authentic self last episode as Shelly's boogeyman, but, you know, after that, he found himself lost in the woods, and he gave away his power to Wyndham Earl. And, um, you know, by the end of this episode, he's being controlled by fear, essentially. And, you know, there's also the electric shocks. There, there's a thing with with twin peaks with head injuries and you know electric shocks from the neck up you know they they qualify i think and you know thumps to the head will get villains eating celery instead of cigars and uh, i think it'll also get abusers thinking empathetically too you know apparently and um so Leo gets the shock collar in the first scene of his at Wyndham Earl's cabin. And, um, you know, Wyndham's playing his flute, acting like Pan from Midsummer's Night Dream. You know, is that is that kind of metaphorical and symbolic that, you know, Leo is waking up into half of a dream, too? You know, it's like he wakes up after a night in the woods, essentially. And, um, you know, he's still kind of in this weird weird reality state with a with a fairy around him uh, you know that that's kind of what it's coded to be um but you know overnight Wyndham's researched everything on leo so there's been lots of drug trafficking earl gets excited about the arson and you know domestic violence now i am partial to that and um you know leo gets up to you know get away from this because he's like oh i'm being revealed essentially uh you know it's like this guy knows way too much but, you know, he's hit from behind by Earl's flute, you know, but behind the knee and he drops to the floor and uh, Earl puts the flute over his neck to pin him to the ground. And, um, you know, then we get Earl saying, you know, he took a thorn from Leo's paw and now I want you to help me and obey me. So, I mean, what did Earl do? Give him shelter for a night? Ooh, you know, what else did he do? I think this is a tough trade. And, um, you know, the, the flute is a cudgel to both sides of Leo's ears to kind of disorient him. And, um, you know, then Earl attaches the neck ring and, you know, makes cat noises the whole time. You know, the, that, you know, the, um, the purring kind of sounds. And, um, you know, they taps Leo in the nose. And um, immediately after that, he tells Leo that he made gruel and shocks Leo with the collar when he doesn't approach. And then he feeds Leo by wooden spoon and, you know, purrs some more. So, you know, he thinks of Leo as his cat, I guess. And, you know, the next time we see Leo after that, Earl's applying a disguise in the broken mirror. And he says to Leo, work slowly and with care. Everything must be written with a steady, uncompromising hand. So Leo is trying to write. But, you know, he can't because he's been electric shocked this whole time. And Earl comes up behind him and says, you know, no, no, terrible, erase. And, you know, Leo just stops. But then he gets shocked because he's not erasing. Um, and, you know, Earl has him try again with the shaky charged hand and, you know, more shock. But then, you know, Earl helps him from behind, you know, steering his hand. And, you know, then he says, you know, much better. I am proud of you, Leo. And, you know, kisses him on the cheek, feeds him a cookie while Leo continues to write. So, um, you know, Leo looks at him for a while after that. And, um, you know, he finally stutters out, Wyndham Earl. And um, I kind of wonder, is he saying that because he's so jumbled up in the head? Um 
you know, is he trying to get in good with his controller now? You know, some kind of submission respect thing? Or, you know, is it because he's not sure he's still looking at Wyndham Earl because of the mustache? Um, you know, I, object permanence or whatever that, you know, little kids have to go through, you know, the, you know, the, the peekaboo kind of deal. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of with his jumbled up head, the way he is, um, kind of how Cooper Dougie wakes up to himself with the fork. But, you know, I, I, I know I said this before, but, um, you know, I, I do see similarities with how Cooper was as Cooper Dougie in season three. But, you know, with Leo, it's kind of an inverted process because he woke up with the um, with the electrical, you know, the power outages, uh, waking up from his coma into his most authentic self up to that point. And, you know, then you know, eventually now he's being shocked into a childlike state. So, um, you know, just like Cooper, uh, as Cooper Dougie, we've got Leo not being quite all there. He's not quite connected to his body. Um, you know, Cooper Dougie gave all his power to others. You know, we've got Jade, uh, driving him wherever he, uh, you know, wherever she's going to take him. Uh, Janie E is basically in charge of everything. Bushnell Mullins is in charge of the office. You know, even Coffee and Phil Bisbee are in charge of, of Cooper Dougie. And, um, you know, here we have Leo um, having given away all his power to Earl. I mean, unwillingly so, but, you know, he's done it. So um, there, there are going to be certain parallels, even though it's inverted. But yeah, then Earl shifts over to the written words that uh, he just had Leo write. And um, he says, you know, pretty words for pretty girls. And it's Donna, Shelley, and Audrey on the, on the top of the page. And he says, which one shall become my queen? And rips it into three pieces. And Leo says, no, no, no. Is it because he doesn't want Earl to Frankenstein monster someone else like has been done to him? You know, did the electricity rewire... <laughs> Leo's brain enough where, you know, now that he's experienced being controlled, um, it gives Leo empathy for other people who are also controlled. And, um, you know, he doesn't want other people to get controlled. And Shelly is someone who he considers his or, you know, would at least in a twisted way, a part of his, you know, world or family. And is Leo now being protective of Shelly now that he's kind of inverted back into someone who has empathy and he can actually feel empathy for Shelley now you know regardless we don't really get too much more of leo psychology here uh when earl forces leo to lick the envelope but you know we got the stuttering camera with the images of the girl falling to the floor yeah i think i think it's still kind of there where like either the girls or leo are all trapped and probably all of them you know worst case scenario they're tied up in earl's plans or, I mean, you know, simplest scenario, they're caught up in his plans. Speaking of Earl's plans, you know, the next question on the list is, how does Wyndham Earl tap into these forces to enact his plans? And, you know, first first question is, who is Wyndham Earl here? Um, okay, we see him playing the flute, and we see him wearing the Long John-style pajamas, prancing around like he's Pan in Midsummer's Night Dream. And I know I've talked about this before, too, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like... Um, because he's spent a night in Twin Peaks now, he's been personality affected, kind of like how Cooper was between the pilot and episode one, where, you know, uh, Cooper was very noir. And I mean, he was quirky, but, you know, he didn't seem to necessarily have empathy for the town folk. 
until episode one, um, you know, where he kind of felt like he was going to be staying here for a little while. And, you know, now um, we've got Earl, who is all hard-nosed and, you know, uh, very noir last episode. And um, now we've got him being a wackadoo who's like halfway caught up in dreams. That's honestly the only way that I can really justify the wild fairy acting um, that he's doing here. You know, I mean, it, you know, it's like this is the first time we've ever seen someone do Shakespearean fairy um, on set. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's not the mind who's cold like a diamond anymore. And I have a hard time justifying it. So I'm trying to connect where I can. Um, you know, cause personally, I think he'd have been much scarier without the four extra gears worth of zaniness, you know, as of now, um, from this point forward, we're going to get Batman 66, uh, Cesar Romero Joker comparisons. And, um, you know, that, that ties him into the comedic side of things too. You know, he's not just a serial killer. He's a joke. Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of an odd tone choice for the biggest bad since Bob, but, um, yeah, they, they eventually kind of pull him back by episode 28, but uh, it takes a little while to kind of come back from this. Okay, so he's playing the flute. You know, is is the flute just there to wake Leo? Um, but, you know, I mean, technically you could look at the flute like, you know, that's what also helps transform him a bit. Uh, you know, retuning him, you know, a sound frequency. You know, because, you know, listen to the sounds, you know, maybe he's playing his own... Um, zany maker i don't know <laughs> you know the the flute by itself doesn't really bother me though because i mean the samurai really did have to use um you know the shakuhachi flutes like weapons back when you know swords were outlawed that kind of thing so enough about that but then we get um earl as the meticulous researcher uh, you know while leo slept uh, earl learned everything about leo and then made printouts you know so how did he get a printer out in the middle of the woods that um could actually print this stuff who knows you know maybe maybe he invented wi-fi he maybe he's that zany or maybe lodge space works on wi-fi uh but you know anyway uh silly joke for 1991 uh yeah so um you know, we get Earl getting excited about the arson and the domestic violence. You know, he hits Leo, you know, pins him with the flute. Uh, so it is a weapon, you know, compares Leo to Leo the lion. Um, and then, you know, coerces help from him. You know, it's like, you know, I took a thorn from your paw. Now you, I want you to help me and obey me. So it's coerced help, which is, you know, a pattern with Wyndham Earl which will eventually backfire on him. But, you know, right now it's the hubris. It's the, 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 um, you know, going for power at all costs because that's what evil does. Ha ha ha. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's the, the flute on both sides of Leo's ears to kind of like incapacitate his hearing, you know, his, his, uh, listen to the sound sense for Leo. Like he got him a little bit messed up so that, um, Earl could just attach the, um, the neck ring to him you know then he uh forces leo to eat the gruel um when he doesn't approach you know then he tries zapping whenever um leo isn't you know jumping to it and the next time we see earl we see him applying the uh the disguise in the broken mirror the way he's segmented in this mirror on the bottom right side um we see his mouth and cheek uh, um his um 
his right eye is kind of sharing a position with the triangle part that you know like of the the point of the break the break the right eye and eyebrow and the top of his head are in the right piece and then um the right eye is almost at the end of the segment of the left piece of broken mirror that has another mouth and nose and the entire left side of Earl's face with the uh, with the hand and arm applying the disguise. And, um, you know, this would be the side that goes numb if someone was wearing the owl ring. And Earl is working from that left side of the glass, you know, not the right side at all. And, you know, he says to Leo, work slowly and with care. Everything must be written with steady, uncompromising hand. And that's when he adds the mustache. So, yeah, then he comes up behind Leo, you know, says it's terrible, a race. And then he shocks Leo when Leo doesn't uh, doesn't work with him immediately and, you know, tries again, more shock. And then he and then, of course, you know, he has to control Leo's hand when it's still not working. And then, you know, he praises Leo, you know, much better. I'm proud of you. You know, gives the guy a cookie when it finally works. And, um, you know, then we get Earl talking about the written words there. And, um, you know, it's it's pretty world, pretty words for pretty girls. Uh, which one shall become my queen? So um, about the queen concept, remember, uh, Dale had the uh, the queen piece that Pete knocked him out with. Um and, you know, the, the queen with Caroline, you know, it's like there are associations that we can already make that um, these girls are probably going to fall into the fate of Caroline Earl. And um, the queen is going to destroy Dale again. And, um, you know, I, I assume what's what's really supposed to be happening here is, you know, Earl is picking the woman to fridge in order to force Dale into action. And, um, you know, he forces Leo to lick the envelope. And we'll see Earl again, but you know what's he actually doing here? Well, we um we we get the first word of that when Albert arrives, and uh, you know Albert is genuine help, unlike the coerced help that Leo is for Earl. You know we've got Albert coming in, and you know he's not a coerced henchman. He's uh, and he's even a bit of his old surly self. You know he says "Get a life, punk" when he walks in, and. Uh, you know, shouts it to Bobby on the way out. So, you know, Albert's reading the room and scolding someone with an adversarial bent. Um, you know, it's it's basically the same as it ever was in that way. Like anybody who um, slows Albert down gets a little bit of uh, sass. And, um, you know, even though he's changed his tune completely with Truman and we get, you know, the lots of lots of pats on the back with those two and, you know, a big long hug. And, uh, you know, then he gives a handshake to Cooper afterward and says, you know, like he's here. He's here because, as Gordon puts it, I'm worried about Coop. And, you know, we get the uh, the impression from uh, Miguel Ferrar of David Lynch, which is uh, pretty cute here. So, um, you know, um, we, we get glimpses of the old Albert and we get this new soft teddy bear Albert, too. And, um, you know, he's there because of Earl's um, actions around town. You know, all these package deliveries that are on a map from... Uh, Springfield, Illinois, to Dallas, Texas, Jackson, Mississippi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and no one makes a mention that on this map, it's in the form of a C or, you know, an incomplete circle, which is also a theme. But, you know, I'm assuming that the C could be for Caroline or Cooper or, you know, anything. But like, for some reason, they don't point, you know, they, they don't, uh, you know, put, you know, tap that on the nose and, uh, <laughs> you know, blatantly pointed out. So, yeah, 
of of all the things to leave off that are like blatantly obvious, you know, not talking about that one seems almost like a misstep. Um, but you know, only for consistency. Um, but anyway, what's it, what are in these packages? There's a white veiled garter, there's white slippers, there's a pearl necklace, there's a wedding dress. And uh, Cooper recognizes these immediately as Caroline's, you know, even though he wasn't actually there at uh, Earl and, and, and uh, Caroline's wedding, uh, nor did he even know them at the time. So, you know, it's like he's been studying a lot of pictures, apparently, or, you know, maybe they do a little bit of role play. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, um, the... Um, you know, all, all the uh, state law enforcements are looking for Earl at this point. But um, but Albert has this great line of everyone's invited to the party. But my guess is he won't dance with anyone but you, Coop. And Albert also brings details of the vagrant. You know, the, um, Earl basically waited for rigor mortis to leave the way that it came in. So, you know, it's like the, the electricity goes in and then it comes back out. It's a reversal. It's... Um, you know, very uh, backwards talking as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, to to leave the point and, um, you know, form the pointing finger. You know, it's like the, the electricity has to leave where um, where it came in. And, um, you know, so we have we have um, Earl, who's already done the shock collar, also being in control of the electricity to uh, form a corpse's shape. And, uh, you know, then then Albert says, then he played Zeus at the power station. So, you know, god of lightning, god of electricity, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've got Earl being associated with that all day long here. And, you know, Cooper and Albert agree that Earl's making his next move. You know, then, then after that, we get a little bit of a shift where, you know, Albert shifts gears to... Um, something nice to say and he says replacing the elegance of the dark suit and tie with the casual indifference of those muted earth tones is a form of fashion suicide but call me crazy i knew it works so you know i i just like that um you know it's it's um <laughs> it's a fun way to say that you know not even the show really enjoys cooper in the flannel but you know it's only about five episodes total in the grand scheme of things and um yeah, it's it's fun to hang a hat on it when it's nearing the end. But anyway, you know, Albert continues his help by IDing Josie as um, as Cooper Shooter at the end of episode seven, and um, Albert's part basically concludes there. But you know, the Earl storyline keeps going with um, with Cooper speaking to Dart throwing Harry about the vagrant case. So you know, Harry. Um, Harry is also helping Cooper willingly rather than being coerced into it. Um, you know, he tells he tells Cooper Eric Powell is the guy's name. And and, um, you know, Cooper, of course, connects straight to Caroline. You know, Caroline's maiden name is Powell. And then he tells Harry every move he makes sends a message. The fact that he chose the name Powell tells me he hasn't forgotten a thing that went on between us. I would say if Earl's looking for a vagrant, you know, he kind of hinges on random chance who he's going to meet. So, like, does he just meet people and wait until there's some, uh, you know, happenstance that, um, you know, like the 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 coincidences and then he kills them? You know, it's like, who knows? You know, maybe maybe there's like four other guys that he like bought a meal for at Waffle House and then let them go. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's fun to 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 poke at the you know to 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 poke at the earl storyline a little bit but i really do like it 
Anyway, like, you know, regardless of how many people it took before he found a Powell, you know, Harry now understands that losing a piece on Cooper's board means that someone in real life dies. So, you know, here he volunteers Pete's service. And, you know, we go straight over to the double R. And we have Pete checkmating Toad, Cooper, and Doc Hayward at the same moment. And, you know, Pete laughs as he does it, and so does Harry. And, um, you know, after Pete's skills were properly assessed, Cooper requests, I'd like to stalemate the game, losing as few pieces as possible. None, if that can be arranged. And, um, you know, Pete just says, Agent Cooper, I'd love to serve. And, um, you know, we get more help here, and none of it's actually coerced. And, um, you know, that's why this will be effective for a little while. You know, Cooper just says, thanks, Pete. Great players are either far or few. And, you know, then Cooper puts down the queen piece that just got taken. And, um, you know, it's, it's more subtle punctuation that, you know, Cooper's not actually concerned about his consistent weakness you know it's like shouldn't he be a little concerned that you know the game ended with a queen or is he just you know happy that you know someone else is going to be driving the car for the game so it doesn't really matter where his weakness on the board is because he already knows what it is um but anyway it's it's a nice use of subtle connection to the queen you know sure pete isn't going to completely help cooper take down earl but you know maybe it's because of Cooper's concern for the queen not coming through, you know, we've got Cooper worried about all the wrong things and, you know, he's worried about his past rather than the future. And, um, in a lot of ways he's giving into his fear and his past trauma. And, you know, we've got Earl controlling that throughout the course of his time so far. Um, you know, Earl connects in more and more to things back in time to where, you know, Cooper and Caroline were um, assaulted and she was killed. And, um, you know, next time we see Cooper, it's back at the Great Northern and Cooper's whistling something. And, you know, he just stops at the elevator in the lobby area and, you know, takes a picture of Caroline straight out of his wallet. You know, he never he's never done this before, um, you know, until he's properly remembered and, um, you know, he's, um, you know, connecting more and more to her. So, like, now he's bringing out her picture, you know, not 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 a physical memory taking life, like the, uh, the blowing hair, Caroline, that we got yesterday, or, you know, last episode in the flashback that he was kind of imagining while he was telling Cooper his backstory. I mean, while he was telling Harry his backstory. Um, you know, we get a physical picture now. Um, and, you know, the picture of Laura Palmer um, at the end of the episode, you know, that kind of uh, gives her a little bit of power. So now this picture of Caroline is giving Caroline a little bit more life with Cooper. And um, it's so strong that Earl comes out in the elevator just behind him. The episode after Cooper says, I can still feel his presence. Um, you know, that is long gone now that Caroline has all his attention. And, you know, Earl recognizes Cooper here, but, you know, Cooper misses Earl completely. So, um, you know, I mean, Earl was presumably just finishing up the death mask setup in uh, Cooper's room, but, um, you know, like, it, it's, um, you know, he, he's just going about his business, enacting his plans in the order that he wants to. And, uh, 
you know, he brings that envelope that he had Leo lick, uh, you know, and then he gives it to the concierge desk where he says, you know, for Miss Audrey Horn, please. And, you know, then after that, um, you know, he, we, we see him setting up the acquisition of his new queen, you know, to repeat the cycle that is connected to Caroline. And, um, <laughs> you know, and then, and then we get a moment of absolutely unsubtle and, you know, it's gotta be the rack of postcards, all of the same one owl. And, you know, he, he plucks one off and says, owls. And, you know, because, you know, of course, Earl is the one who's unsubtle. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, then we get, um, you know, we, we don't follow Earl anymore in this episode. We go back and uh, see Cooper reacting to his handiwork. And, you know, Cooper's in his room. He takes off his vest. You know, he checks the um, the hanging bureau suit. And, you know, like he kind of fluffs it almost like, you know, soon. You know, he doesn't say it, but, you know, it's like we're all kind of wanting him to get in that suit anyway. Uh, and so is he. But, you know, then he turns around and then he sees this glowing mask tucked into his made bed and you know there's lit eyes on it and um you know it's like when he goes over to it he picks it up the lit eyes go from uh go from that all the way to full black when he lifted it up and you know he that sets off earl's recorder which um which has earl's voice in it so earl's voice is now in cooper's room in an unintentional way rather than cooper playing it through his uh, diane recorder so, yeah, now we have Earl saying, breathtaking, wasn't she? A truly beautiful woman, Caroline. Funny, isn't it? After all this time, after all that's happened in Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, from this point, we see um, the, uh, the camera through the eye hole now. So, you know, Cooper is looking. I mean, Cooper is being shown through this frame of Cooper's eye hole. Um, you know, which matches up well with all the doors and the windows that we've seen up to now. You know, the uh, the the perpetual motion door with uh, with Pete and then, you know, Cooper being on the other side of it. And then we'll see more with, you know, Harry and Norma. Um, and, you know, it's like everybody is like being seen through frames. And now Cooper is being seen through the frame of this death mask. So, you know, it's like the the eye is the window to the soul, essentially. And, you know, it's like it, it's the same as all the other windows. And we're kind of meant I, I think we're meant to see this as, you know, we're seeing it through the soul of a dead person. And um, that's how we're supposed to frame what Cooper's thinking about right here, too. And, um, you know, of course, he's like super connected to Caroline even more. And he has, you know, her face in his wallet. And now he has a 3d face of hers in his bed and um you know earl's message continues after all this time after all that's happened in pittsburgh i still love her and i know that you do too now dale listen carefully it's your move so you know we'll we'll learn that earl's here more so to gain access to the black lodge you know his, his uh his main main goal the the one that he came to town for in the first place. But, you know, just like he found a vagrant who, um, whose last name is Powell, he's using Cooper to become the key to get into the lodge in the first place. You know, that, that's his long, 
that's his long game right here is, you know, he knows that it takes manipulating and fear to get there. And, um, you know, it, it, it couldn't be better timing than having an FBI agent. He absolutely knows how to control through fear being right next to a portal that Earl is interested in. There is more than fear, though, in Twin Peaks. Um, it pretty much leaves us with, with the last question, which is, how do we see characters overcoming these forces to find themselves? You know, sure, Earl is good at steering the fear for a lot of people, but there is more. Like, there's, um, you know, there, there's even overcoming delusion here. Like, what, what's the difference between Ben Horn's delusion and the delusions that I've talked about thus far in the episode? I mean, Ben has help. He's being supported through this. On the surface, Ben's scenes look thematically similar to you know evelyn's unreality and um you know so on <laughs> the um you know the the set design stuff that richard bamer was complaining about the um you know the you know ben wouldn't have made it himself um <laughs> you know it's like the, this this has really been building though like you know it's it's been becoming more and more real every single episode and um it had been building up to the point where it has already been becoming, you know, more and more elaborate and realized as we went through these episodes. And, you know, here is the breakthrough point where it becomes as real as possible, like even like physically looking more like what Ben has in his head. And, you know, that's what ends up taking Ben through it. So sure, his his interiority has taken on like a physical life of its own. But, you know, rather than Lodge Space being in control of this delusion and, you know, needing camera tricks to portray what he's seeing and feeling, um, his manifested delusion is assisted by helpers who, you know, I mean, sure, they're performing a play badly, but, you know, they're all in lockstep to get Ben through this farce. Um, and, you know, the people that are, you know, doing the set design and everything else are Jacoby, Audrey, and Jerry in this case. You know, it would have been hand-drawn paper backgrounds like Bamer suggested behind the scenes, um, you know, without... Jacoby, Audrey, and Jerry in charge of, like, trying to make this uh, scenario for Ben. You know, they're in charge of the props department. And, um, you know, the, the impromptu community theater play the, the, of, the, uh, of the epimatic scenario. <laughs> and, um, you know, they didn't even stage that play until Jacoby was already frustrated that Ben wasn't surfacing from the delusion after his, you know, after, quote-unquote, his army won the final battle last episode. You know, honestly, he's kind of stuck right at the end, um, at the beginning of this storyline. Um, you know, it begins with him on a pile of what's, uh, I'm assuming is supposed to be a horse and, um, you know, saddles on top of it. It's a representation of a horse without actually looking like a horse. And, um, you know, he's talking while Jacoby and Johnny laugh at his jokes. And, um, 
Yeah, you know, he he's he's telling a story of how Stonewall Jackson wants to follow the running Yankees who are fleeing to the Canada. And, you know, that's a thematic consistency where the bad guys always make border crossings to Canada around Twin Peaks. And it's no different even in the uh, Civil War. Uh, you know, there, there's five drummers in a line. They're real. Um as an audience for uh for ben and um you know this is when jaco uh, when yeah when jacoby is really frustrated and you know he's telling uh jerry and audrey that letting him out to mingle with the public doesn't even seem to help um and you know he seems stumped he and you know generally concerned that you know this has gone on beyond the south's victory you know the fact that ben seems trapped in this thing you know it, it brings out certain aspects within his family too and this needs to be taken care of before they can move on to the epimatic scenario um you know jerry is basically now thinking that oh ben's fun this way and there's advantages to leaving him insane you know he he wants to start developing his own projects but then we also have audrey 100 percent, you know came into her own at this point and um you know it's it's her doing it intentionally rather than just reacting to trauma like uh like before episode 17 and you know she says let me tell you something uncle jerry you leave him you leave him the way he is and i become the executor of the estate and you know jerry's like oh audrey it's a little more complicated than that sweetie but then you know firm as can be she says no it isn't i examined his will jerry if my father becomes incapacitated it all goes to me when i'm old enough and i am old enough jerry and he is incapacitated i have my way either way and the only project you'll be developing is selling baseboard heaters at a local cash and carry and you know jerry's response is what's happened to the man is a tragedy so you know we have ben who in season one is severely disappointed and skeptical about Audrey's interest in the business. Um, he must've already had that in the will or, you know, did he do it right after he got back from one eye Jacks after Audrey verified everything that he was doing? Um, you know, I, I know this was thought of by the writers, you know, with, with only Audrey's rebooted character in mind, but you know, it would explain if she was in his will back in season one, you know, what Ben saw in her and why, you know, she left him so disappointed in the earlier episodes, um, you know, because she's refusing her obvious potential, her obvious potential to her dad, who, yeah, I mean, you know, back then he wasn't really paying attention to her because, you know, she wasn't um, interested in playing ball in his playground. But, um, you know, so you you can make a case for the fact that, you know, she was already in the will as the person. But, you know, as far as why Audrey helps her father here, you know, maybe she just has empathy for people who do not have the ability to defend themselves, regardless of their previous history. Um, you know, I mean, she's been seeing how Johnny has been treated over the years, um, you know, sees similar breaks from reality with her dad now, uh, likens the two together. And, you know, maybe she even sympathizes uh, from her own potential that is in full swing in season three. Um, the, um, you know, full potential for a mental break herself. I mean, you know, sure, it's actually a character reboot here, but, you know, it can work, um, 
with past Audrey and future Audrey within the narrative still. There's, you know, technically room for it. But, you know, regardless, Audrey finally is meeting that potential that's been in her all along. And uh, Jerry is actually finally able to see that Audrey is Ben's daughter in more than just name now. And, you know, he changes his tune right away. So, you know, he understands who's in charge. <laughs> but anyway, this interaction between them is needed to happen so that they could both be on the same page with Ben and, um, you know, play their parts in Jacoby's plan for the right reasons. And, you know, Jacoby wants to implement the worst case scenario sounding epimatic scenario, though, you know, I mean, instead of right away being told uh, what that means or what it'll be, um, you know, the viewers first get this to end that scene. You know, there's badly played drums. Uh, Bobby comes in with his shitty trumpet blowing. And, uh, you know, his, Johnny is howling while Ben and Jacoby sing Dixie. And then this is the scene that I think um, Robert Engels was referring to that I mentioned last episode, where he wanted to make sure that, um, you know, Richard Bamer and Russ Tamlin had something to sing and dance to together. But yeah, as far as Jacoby's plan, you know, we get introduced to that um, in the next time we see this location. And, you know, it's it's as if it was a play that was already started. So in that one, it starts out with the Civil Wars uh, flute soundtrack. Um, then we get, you know, a, a pile of wheat. And um, then it pans up into Audrey, who's all gone with the wind with her outfit. And um with her binoculars, you know, little tiny binoculars. And then we see through them and we see a horse's eye and then up to her dad. And, you know, she calls out generally, you know, like she's totally invested in this play. And, you know, the horse is real looking now. And, you know, it even nazed the, the touch. <laughs> and um, all of it feels like this really poorly rehearsed stage play that even includes spotlights. And, um, you know, Audrey and her quote-unquote father, Jerry Wilbur McLean, uh, welcomes Robert E. Lee on his journey. And um, <laughs> Jerry picked up Ben's sword as a prop. And, you know, that one of my, one of my favorite lines from this whole section is, you know, uh, Ben saying, it's like, why are you armed with my sword, sir? And, uh, you know, Ben, ben takes it back and sheathes it. And, you know, <laughs> it's just funny to see how like slipshod this production is and um how ben is completely invested in it anyway and uh you know bobby enters with more bad trumpet uh you can actually see the confederate flag at the top of the stage then you know we get the lighting on jacoby as general grant and you know they share some words and um jacoby's just trying to speed it along he says i have come to surrender the north and you know he gets sidelined uh, for this already desired answer, you know, from from his already desired answer to um, what Ben was already asking him, you know, it's like there's supposed to be pleasantries first, and you know, he's, and and he repeats this question: the Mexican War. Do you remember? You know, Jacoby, half invested with his um, actual uh, dialogue, and he says, "Oh yes, it was a good war, as I remember." And you know, we get Ben doing all this thematic work of like what Ben is actually kind of feeling underneath all this, and he says, "Nonsense." Uh, and this is when the Confederate flag actually drops between the two and divides them and becomes a backdrop between Ben's giant speech here, uh, and he says, "You know." 
All wars are nothing but madness, disguised as the patriotic ventures of politicians too old and too cowardly to participate. So war is a disguise, which, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee is a disguise for Ben right here. But, um, you know, does Ben feel like back when he was just a, uh, when, when he was just a businessman, you know, like, was he, um, feeling too cowardly to participate and that's how he ended up losing his battle against Catherine for the land. He continues by saying, now I have no love for war and Jacoby pops through his flag, <laughs> you know, from the ba background to say, you know, me neither. And, you know, is again ignored because Ben's got this monologue that he has to finish. And even less for politicians, but as far as the men who fight them, and then he takes off his hat. They have my eternal respect and sympathy. And then he puts his hat back on. All right, General, enough of this fruitless conversation that Ben had started. My terms. Officers may keep their sidearms and in general, and we get the horse neighing, <laughs> may keep their houses and go back to them. And, you know, Jacoby just, you know, again says, I surrender. And Ben says, of course you do. You know, so um, now we get it so that you know they're walking over to quote unquote wilbur's house and you know jerry's playing a harmonica in the background to set the stage and um you know they they talk about the articles of surrender which are laid out on the table and they get up after signing and uh jacoby and ben shake on it and then the spell is finally broken. We got Ben tipping over, um, you know, kind of lurching to the floor and like his head hits the ground with a big hit. So, you know, there's another head injury. Uh, you know, it changes perception. And I'm assuming that it changes perception here for Ben, uh, you know, to finish off the deal. And they crowd around him and he asks twice, you know, like, where am I? And, um, you know, then we go into the Wizard of Oz mode where, you know, Jerry's saying, you know, Twin Peaks, Ben. And he and Ben says, you know, oh, I had the strangest dream. It was incredible. It was a war. And I was General Robert E. Lee. And somehow, despite incredible odds and, you know, the Twin Peaks theme is playing here. So, you know, it's earnest and, you know, it's serious. Right. Uh, ben says, I won. You know, of course, he's saying, you know, and you were there and you were there and you were there and you were there like to everybody in here. And, um, you know, Audrey, Audrey is saying, you know, like now you're home, daddy, you know, home again, being a giant theme, especially of season three. You know, it's like here we have a metaphorical, you know, it's like he came home, even though he's been in the great northern the whole time. Uh, home is more like a perception thing here. And, um, you know, Ben says, yes, I'm home. He feels terrific, and you know what are they doing in all these clothes? And you know the the whole the whole room just breaks in in a laughter and relief, you know. And it sounds just like a sitcom episode conclusion. Yeah, I mean we basically have Ben making it out by the end, and um, we've got Jacoby and Audrey and Jerry ending his story. You know the Appomattox scenario really did end Ben's story, which you know makes me think again you know a thematic connection to audrey um uh, but this time you know audrey's in her delusional trap in um you know part 12 on you know part 12 through 16 of uh twin Peaks season three and um you know she's in this trap the same kind of way as ben here and you know charlie tells her out loud you know it's like do i have to end your story too and um 
you know, except hers won't end with a, a Wizard of Oznod and, um, you know, being surrounded by people that care about her. You know, when she wakes up to uh, what's actually in front of her that looks different than what she's experiencing mentally, um, you know, she's in a different place. But I find it kind of interesting that, you know, you can look at this um, this stage play as like a story that, needed to be ended for uh reality to set in so you know was charlie um actually a therapist you know like just trying to break through audrey's um you know delusion it it'll it'll be something to think about but it's kind of neat that like even in one of the quote-unquote worst storylines of twin peaks um there's still a lot of resonance between those two and ben isn't the only um the only person in town that's allowed to follow their delusion because we've got Nadine doing the same thing. Um, and you know, her following her delusion basically gets her, I mean, it's starting to get her accomplishments. You know, she's trying to make something of herself this time around and, you know, sure. She only gets second place in the competition she just went to, but you know, that's not bad when you're just starting out. And, um, especially after so many actual physical years of putting herself last. And, you know, I mean, sure, she is definitely still in a delusion here. And, you know, when she gets home, um, Ed and Norma are actually in bed together. And, you know, Norma tries to get up here to do the usual, you know, let's let's hide out and, um, you know, not get caught. But Ed is actually uh, picking this moment to decide, you know, it's like, well, may as well talk to her now. And, um, you know, Ed's actually introducing some truth to Nadine here, um, you know, trying to give Nadine a little, a little level of reality and, um, you know, sure it doesn't end up being an epimenic scenario, but, um, it's, it's interesting that he wants to try to do it. You know, he's caught red handed with mostly nowhere else to go, but, um, you know, siding with the truth rather than more hiding is a positive move for Ed too. And we've got Nadine entering, you know, she removes the door on her way in and, uh, gets right in bed with those two. Um, you know, and then she says, you know, got all the way to the finals, a knife river only to find out the airplane slam is illegal. And, you know, she's holding a trophy this whole time that she could probably bludgeon those two with if she wanted to. But, you know, she says, I was disqualified. Second place. What a drag. At this point, we've got Nadine apologizing to Norma. So she definitely recognizes who she's talking to anyway. And, you know, she apologizes to Norma about what she did to Hank. And, you know, she says, I sort of got mad. And, um, you know, we've got Nadine actually holding herself accountable for her actions within her delusion. And, um, you know, Norma just says thank you and, you know, gives her a little bit of gratitude back which is, you know, a nice kind of thing between those two. And, um, you know, Nadine gets out of bed at that point and she tries to leave. And, um, you know, the cute music kicks in right after she says, you know what, I know about you guys. It's really, really okay. She doesn't have, you know, basically, um, you know, knowing that um, Ed and Norma are together, she basically says she doesn't have to feel so guilty about her and Mike, which is really serious. And, um, you know, Ed and Norma can do whatever they want. She's okay with this, really. I know when I was on Bickering Peaks, I, I mentioned that, um, like, why couldn't they have, like, just stretched that moment out when she says, you know what? 
I know about you guys and like not kick in the cute soundtrack until after she says it's really, really okay. Like give her a moment and give the audience a moment of going like, Oh God, you know, what's going to happen here? Um, is this actually dangerous? But you know, that doesn't happen at all because we are stuck so deeply in delusion this episode. You know, it's like, we've got uh, Evelyn's mental point of view. We got Ben's mental point of view. You know, it's like, they're, they're all here. You know, even Cooper's kind of doing mental tricks with the Caroline thing with the, the, you know, focusing too much on his past. Um, so, you know, it being like full on Nadine's point of view in here, because, you know, she's kind of the strongest personality in the room. Um, it's not dissimilar from the rest of the show, this episode. So I'm willing to kind of look past it, but you know, the usual twin peaks element of dread could have easily been there in a really strong way, but you know, they, they went more with the consistency within the episode. And I, I get it, even though, you know, I, I don't necessarily like it as much, but you know, yeah, she's the, she's the strongest, um, point of view in the room because, um, you know, she's feeling safer than ever in this cocoon that she's built around herself. And, um, you know, it's, it's really starting to show the positive results all the way around, you know, it's like, she's even kind of coming to grips with Ed and Norma. Um, you know, with the, with the right kind of care and further support, she could have really broke through eventually with like Ben did this episode. Um, you know, it's like, what, what could her exit out of this have looked like without that sandbag knocking her out in episode 28 and, you know, giving her a head injury. But, you know, I mean, still there's moments of seeing that other Nadine, you know, the, the original Nadine that we all know, um, still being in there and that Nadine's just not completely connected with all of her feelings because, you know, it's like when she's saying it's okay, you know, she's twisting the top of that statue all around. So, you know, she's, she's still got something in there that's not quite, you know, that she's not quite willing to see eye to eye, but, you know, while Nadine's doing her cocoon, we've also got Norma, um, you know, coming into her own. And, you know, I mean, sure, she's using Nadine's delusion for, you know, a means to part of her growth. But, um, you know, we do have uh, Norma systematically creating a life of, uh, you know, made out of boundaries and intentionality. Um, you know, starting in episode 17 when she kicked her mom out of town. You know, in this scene before Nadine comes in, we've got Ed, who, you know, does not act like he's got a troubling phone call from Donna in his recent past at all. So, you know, maybe the Marsh storyline really is in some pocket of darkness based on how Ed's reacting, or maybe Ed's just in a cocoon here with Norma. But, you know, it starts out him saying, it's been 20 years, babe. And, um, you know, there's this world of hurt between the graduation party and here. And, you know, then he, he leans over to kiss Norma's shoulder to, to reveal that she's there too, and that they are both in bed finally. And um, Norma, about the time, basically says, you know, I tried not to think about it. Uh, she spent more and more time at the diner, uh, kept it open all the time so she didn't have to have birthdays or Christmas or another life. Um, so, you know, she she dives in whole hog into her business and makes the business an extension of her, which, um, you know, I'll definitely be thinking that way about her in season three when she's doing nothing but bills and everything. And she seems like all she is is for the business. Um, you know, th this is just Norma, 
you know, that that's how she copes with things is by making that her life. Um, and honestly, it's not really that much different than, um, you know, cocooning and delusion and like creating another reality, like becoming a civil war general, except, you know, it's all based in reality. And, you know, it's something that we all do, you know, if we, if we feel like we need to like dive into our business and ignore our own needs. But yeah, so they, they talk about, you know, like Ed, Ed talks about our Christmases are all a week full of Mondays. And, you know, it's like he's not trying to acknowledge the world around him either. He's trying to find a cocoon. And, um, you know, she talks about how she bought him a bolo tie last Christmas, but couldn't go into the house. And, um, you know, they're they're basically airing all their true feelings from over the years. And they're finally not hiding how they actually feel. Uh, you know, about each other, but about, you know, their authentic feelings, too. You know, now they're also starting to, um, you know, declare intentions from here on out, too. Um, you know, Ed, Ed basically says, all that time, you should have been in my house. And then he turns to her face to face and says, in my bed. And um, yeah, they are face to face now. Like they were both just looking straight up in the air. Like, you know, technically, if they didn't have great peripheral vision, maybe they only heard their person rather than seeing them too. Um, but now they are looking face to face. And, and Norma declares, it's about the future now, Ed, and what we're going to do about it. I want you to come to the diner after we close and take me home. And then, yeah, it's it's all ahead of us. And, um, you know, they're, they are coming together more and more every episode and it's working more, um, each episode too. And, um, you know, because, because of this intentionality, especially from Norma, we've got people around her, um, helping, you know, it's like Ed's telling Nadine the truth more and more. I mean, you know, Bobby doesn't have anything to do with Norma exactly, but you know, his cocky admission to witnessing Hank shoot Leo in in the episode earlier uh, to law enforcement means more reinforcement that Hank is leaving her life. And, you know, even even at least one level of Nadine approves of her and Ed, which is, you know, huge improvement from, you know, acting like it's not even there. And, um, you know, sure, maybe it's assisted by dream and delusion along the way. But but Norma is actually shoveling. Um, and you know, with, with this intentionality, she's even getting Shelly back in her life and, you know, about Shelly and about that scene with Bobby, uh, at the law enforcement, uh, place, you know, it's like she, she starts the episode with Bobby in the sheriff's station and, you know, I mean, sure they're sitting in toddler positions because they're really low to the ground in these short chairs. And, um, you know, the table looks kind of like a food tray almost in front of them rather than a table because they both have their arms so far underneath it. Um, you know, so they're, they're kind of <laughs> seen as the, the childlike part of this scene, whereas, you know, Cooper and Harry are standing up. But, you know, we do have Bobby admitting some truths here, even if he's acting as punky as he's ever been. Um you know, he he invokes Laura's name. You know, it's like we've been uh, he's been with Shelley even before Laura died. So, you know, at that point, you know, maybe maybe it's thanks to Laura being mentioned. But Cooper seems to find some intuition and stares at the chessboard and asks Bobby why he you know, where he was the night the mill burned. And then Bobby connects Hank and Leo um, together in that shooting scene. 
you know, I mean, sure, he's doing it while he was doing this head waggle thing and, you know, lighting his lighter. So, you know, he's not totally evolved here. But, you know, it seems like he's him leading with honesty here, along with his bravado, ends up being a good thing for him, too. You know, it's like everybody's starting to tell the truth, even though this is like a weird, surreal episode. You know, while he's doing that, Shelley's situation with Bobby isn't hidden anymore either. Uh, according to, you know, to anybody. And, you know, what does she get for um, being seen more authentically? Uh, she's getting deputies assigned to her house 24-7. And, you know, sure, Bobby gets indignant and says, oh, he'll take care of it instead. You know, it's like all he gets from Harry is Bobby Briggs, button it. And, um, you know, Shelly is respectful to this. And, you know, she's thankful for the deputies. So, you know, she's she's getting to be in a more real place, too. And, um, you know, and the next time we see her, it's at the double R. And, you know, we see the red and white checkered tiles after Pete does his checkmate stuff. And, um, you know, Shelly's legs are walking behind a keep out sign. And, um, you know, then she sits down next to Norma at the ice cream cone that they both start to polish. Um which is when we actually do see that it's Shelly. And, you know, Norma checks in with her about her health, how she's doing, um, you know, feels bad about um, Shelly's safety and basically says that she'd have uh, she'd have checked in sooner. But, you know, there's too much at the diner without Hank. So, you know, she needs help at her place of business where she's invested herself so much. And, um you know, what she gets from that is Shelly asks to come back and, you know, she says she feels safer here. And, um, you know, that's a huge about face for Norma, too, because, you know, she feels less safe at the diner with Hank there, I would assume, but uh, more safe when Shelly is there. So, you know, um, we've got Shelly really knowing that, you know, her home isn't safe, you know, the place where she quote unquote lives, you know, this is where she lives, Shelly. Um, you know, that's not her home. Her home is at the diner with Norma. You know, we've got Shelly striving for safety and, you know, doing something about it by rejoining her support system where she feels more at home. And, um, you know, she's all smiles, Norma's all smiles and they hug. And, um, you know, since, um, since Shelly's reconnecting with her support system, we've got Norma reconnecting with her support system here too. And, um, you know, now that that's happened, we've got Harry coming to the counter and taking Norma aside in that, um, in that tight door frame behind the kitchen window. And, um, you know, Harry, Harry basically tells her that Hank's going away. You know, Norma says this time I don't want him back. So she's being intentional there too. She's not doing what the, uh, the good girl is supposed to do here or the responsible person is supposed to do here. You know, she's trying to make a world that she wants to live in and, you know, not getting Hank back is one of those good things, you know, the, and, and, you know, the gist of Harry, um, you know, Hank's going away a long time. Thanks to things like Bobby mentioning about, Hank being Leo shooter, among other things, and the parole violation, you know, it's like, there's no way out for him now. He's going back for a long time. Yeah, we've got the diner ladies nightmares, um, seeming like they're beginning to end. Um, because, you know, they're actively helping themselves and striving for better. And the world is responding to that because, you know, we're next to portals in Twin Peaks, and the world responds to your intentionality. And, um, 
you know, sure. I mean, it's it's not necessarily going to go that way for a while, but you know, it's like while they're both in a positive, when they're both in a positive situation, growing, you know, growing hope and light and safety together, um, you know, they they really are seeming like you know their nightmares might actually end, and um, yeah, I mean, we're. we're the, this episode is pretty much ending too. So uh, yeah, we're at the sign off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25YL Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. You can find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full Electricity Nexus column, at 25YearsLaterSite.com, and join us on the Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, uh, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or, you know, um, contact us through any of the social medias. And uh, we'll see you next time as we look back into episode 23, the 24th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. I wish you the best of luck. Deepen and expand, deepen the universe the show takes place the show takes place